To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. This video is supported by CuriosityStream. Brothers and sisters, the world is a dangerous place. Full of demons and dark forces that want to control you. You know it. You feel it. And that's what brought you here. But I have bad news for you, brothers and sisters. I can't save you. I am not strong enough to save you. The dark forces that run this world, they've grown too big for too long. They've won, friends. There is no fighting back. There is only escape. Luckily, the good Lord has sent us a messenger. A messenger with a road map. God's GPS, if you will. Can I get an amen? amen? A messenger that will lead you out of this dark place into paradise. A paradise full of boundless love and endless treats. And that messenger's name is the Immaculate, the Divine, the Indomitable, Zoe. Zoe is the light. She is the dark. She is the beginning and the end. She is the one true messenger that will lead us out of this hellish existence. Place all your trust in her, for she is the only way to true happiness and salvation. Family, they lie to you. There is no family. Zoe is your family. Your sources of truth, your media, all liars. Liars who want to keep you complacent until they can drain you of your blood. Don't listen to them. There is only one source of truth in this world, and that is Zoe. Can I get an amen? God has three letters. Zoe has three letters. You can't question that. Money? You don't need money in paradise, friends. Unburden yourself of the demon paper. Cleanse it and make it pure by depositing it into Zoe's account via direct deposit, wire transfer, Venmo, PayPal, and we do accept checks, hallelujah. Now, close your eyes, close your eyes and give silent thanks to God's true messenger, the one and the only Zoe. Close your eyes now, close. In the 1950s, anthropologists visited the island of Tana in Vanuatu and they found something that they weren't expecting. A tribe of people, native people, deep in the jungle with a really odd religion. They worshiped some American dude named John Frum. Who was John Frum? And why did he have religious devotees praying to him in one of the most remote places in the world? John Frum, it turns out, was an American GI that was stationed in Tana during World War II. And while he was there, he kind of you know, accidentally started a cult. 
So in World War II, the United States had a strategy of kind of island hopping, sort of clearing a path so that they could directly attack Japan. And this meant going to a lot of very remote islands that had natives living there that had either very little or no contact at all with the outside world. And then suddenly out of nowhere come these pale people with these metal monsters and flying machines and lots and lots and lots of cargo. Cargo filled with weapons and tools and food that they had never seen before in their lives and in quantities they never could have imagined. These people lived a subsistence living and then suddenly there was literally food just falling from the sky. Well, what would you think? Of course they thought they were gods. Or at least manifestations of their current gods. So then the war ended, the troops went home, and the natives were just kind of left there going, dude. So they prayed and performed rituals and sacrifices, trying to appease these gods so that they would come back and bring with them that precious cargo. And these became known as cargo cults. Dozens of them sprang up in these islands around the Pacific after World War II. And most of them petered out after a while, you know, they, they got the hint that they weren't coming back. But the John Frum movement still continues to this very day. Of course, now it's more of a cultural quirk of the island than an actual religion, but for decades, people actually prayed to John Frum in temples that bore his name. They flew American flags over their villages. Once a year, they threw parades in his honor and dressed like American soldiers, all of them believing that someday John Frum would return and bless them with riches beyond their wildest dreams. All the while, the actual John Frum lived out the rest of his days here in the United States, having no idea that on the other side of the world there were people worshiping him like a god. Assuming John Frum was a real person. There are some people that think that John Frum is actually short for John Frum America, like a soldier from America. But regardless of whether or not John Frum was an actual person, they made him into an actual person, a central figure around which they could base their religion on. And this might be one of the reasons why this cargo cult carried on when others didn't. There are a lot of different types of cults. Uh, cargo cults, they're mostly harmless. They're just sort of an interesting side note to the topic. But cults in general can be really harmful and totally ruin people's lives. Most cults are tied in with religion in some way. In fact, there's a saying that cult plus time equals religion because all religions kind of started off as a, as a cult in some way. In fact, it, a lot of people prefer to not use the word cult at all and prefer to use the term new religious movement. But not all cults are religious in nature. Cults can form around anything. Ideologies, products, companies, business people, self-improvement methods, health fads, basically any cause or movement that can be taken over by a charismatic leader that then people find unhealthy devotion toward, you're getting into cult territory there. According to Ron Enroth from his book, The Lure of Cults, some of the main categories in cults include Eastern mystical, aberrant Christian, psycho-spiritual or self-improvement, eclectic or syncretistic, psychic, occult, or astral, established cults, and extremist political and social movements. Now there's a good chance that at some point in your life you could have fallen into a group that fits one of these categories in some minor way. What really makes it a cult though, 99% of the time anyway, is a charismatic leader. Someone who's highly persuasive, usually a narcissist with authoritarian tendencies and an obsession with power, sex, or money are all three. I mean, think of the kind of narcissism you would have to have to actually think that you're Jesus and that people should worship you. But as people start to fall in line behind this charismatic leader, some common traits start to emerge. The group displays excessively jealous and unquestioning commitment to its leader and regards his belief system, ideology, and practices as the truth, as law. Questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Mind-altering practices such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions, or debilitating work routines are used in excess and serve to suppress doubts about the group and its leader. 
The leadership dictates, sometimes in great detail, how members should think, act, and feel. The group has a polarized us versus them mentality, which may cause conflict with the wider society. The leader is not accountable to any authorities. The leadership induces feelings of shame and or guilt in order to influence and control members. Often this is done through peer pressure and subtle forms of persuasion. Subservience to the leader or group requires members to cut ties with family and friends and radically alter the personal goals and activities they had before joining the group. This is not an exhaustive list. There are other similarities and not every cult fits into every single one of these points. But the basic gist is cults try to control how their members think by controlling what access they have to information. It's classic brainwashing. And not every cult is necessarily dangerous, you know? For a lot of people, they can be an actually a very positive experience, as long as the ideology doesn't get too extreme. But they are dangerous in general. If nothing else, they can take away your freedom of thought, and they can bleed you dry, both financially and socially. But some are definitely worse than others. Some are more controlling than others. Some have more nefarious goals than others. There's a lot of different ways to define worst when it comes to cults. But for this list, I'm going to go with a very simple metric, and that is human lives. How many people actually lost their lives because of this cult? Either going down willingly or not so willingly. And this probably doesn't need to be said explicitly, but uh, this, this, this gets pretty grisly. So, yeah. You've been warned. Number five, the Heaven's Gate cult. Anybody that was around in 1997 probably has the images seared into their minds. Room after room full of bunk beds containing people in track suits and matching Nike shoes covered by a purple shroud. In March of that year, Earth was visited by the Hale-Bopp comet, which is one of the brightest and most spectacular comets that we'd seen in the last 50 years. Like, like seriously, I remember seeing it. It is easily the most impressive comet I've ever seen in my life. People all around the world were looking up in awe at this thing in the sky, but nobody more so than the Heaven's Gate cult. On March 26th, the 39 members of the group all went out to dinner at a local San Diego restaurant, and they all ordered the same thing, turkey pot pie, cheesecake with blueberries, and iced tea. They then went back to their Rancho Santa Fe compound, recorded goodbye messages into a video camera, changed into their tracksuits, and then consumed a mixture of barbiturates and vodka with applesauce. They then went to their bunk beds and drifted off to sleep. Two remaining members then methodically went from room to room with a plastic bag, putting it over each person's head until they asphyxiated and then they took their own lives by taking a lethal dose of the barbiturates. They believed that by doing so, they would ascend up into a UFO that was hiding behind the Hale-Bopp comet. Seriously. How do nearly 40 people come to that conclusion and believe it so strongly they're willing to end their lives for it? Well, it didn't happen overnight. In fact, it took 25 years. The leader was a man named Marshall Applewhite. Marshall grew up in Texas and studied music, later becoming a music professor and choir master at the University of Alabama. Following a divorce in 1968, he had something of a nervous breakdown and eventually wound up in the hospital in 1972 where he met a nurse named Bonnie Lou Nettles. The two hit it off immediately and it's like one of those things like, you know, you, you meet a stranger sometimes and everything just, it just clicks and you just get along immediately and, and eventually decide that, you know, you're obviously a pair of advanced super beings that were prophesied in the book of Revelation. It was, it was one of those things. They began traveling the country, spreading their word, and developing an intricate belief system in which they believed that they were what they called, quote, level above human. Basically, heaven in human form. And it was their job, it was their duty, to convert as many people as possible to be like them until the world gets recycled. Apocalypse style. They believed that the human body was just a vessel and that in order to ascend to that higher form, they had to eschew all human interests and all human desires. 
And they believed that aliens were their pure spiritual form and that someday a spacecraft would come and, and take them away to that higher plane. And they believed that there were some next level humans that came before them, Jesus being one of them. They changed their names to Bo and Peep, clearly because they thought of themselves as shepherds, but later they changed their names to T and Doe. So over the next decade, they traveled the country and recruited people into their group, eventually reaching about 200 people before they started to kind of weed out all but the most loyal and obedient members. Members were kept to a strict code of uniformity. Smoking, alcohol, and sex were forbidden, and all members wore the same baggy clothes and the same haircuts. They wanted to essentially be genderless. In fact, some of the males submitted to castration. They were also kept in a very strict and regimented work schedule to keep them constantly occupied. In 1985, Nettles died of cancer, and Marshall Applewhite took over sole control of the group, and they eventually settled in San Diego in the 90s, where they actually established a really successful web design company there. Seriously, it was a company called Higher Source, and they actually had a pretty great reputation in the area for being, you know, at the cutting edge of web design at the time. Uh, people that they worked for said that they were very professional. A little weird, but professional. And if you want to see some of their work, you can, because the original Heaven's Gate website is still up in all of its 1990s design glory. There were a couple of members that they chose not to level up so that they could continue managing this website over time. So in 1995, when the Hale-Bopp comet was discovered, uh, Marshall Applewhite, or Doe, as he was being called at the time, decided that that was the sign they'd been waiting for, and he put his exit strategy into action. The fact that these people took their own lives is, of course, tragic and sad. But as death cults go, they were fairly innocuous. I know that's a weird thing to say, but um, for the most part, all the people that were former members of the group had nothing but positive things to say about their time there. You know, they didn't abuse the members, they didn't exploit children or anything like that, and they didn't keep people from leaving. Apparently, if somebody wanted to leave, they totally could. They wanted people to be there because they wanted to be there. So yeah, it's sad to us, but in their final statements, or exit interviews as they called them, um, they seem really happy, in fact, thrilled to be going on this journey. I'm not trying to put a positive spin on this or anything, but most of the other people on this list didn't go out quite so happily. Number four, the Order of the Solar Temple. On September 30th, 1994, Emmanuel Dubois was stabbed to death in his home in Montreal. The killers then burned the house down, killing his parents along with him. Emmanuel was three months old. His murder was carried out by members of the Order of the Solar Temple under the direction of their leader, Luc Jure. He believed that the child was the Antichrist. Five days later, Swiss firefighters responded to a call about a burning farmhouse. When they got there, they found 23 charred bodies laying in a circle, one of them, Luc Jure himself. That same day, fires in ski chalets in Switzerland revealed 25 more bodies, with 15 more found in fires in Canada. In 1995, 16 more bodies were found burned in the French Alps, and five more were found a couple years later in 1997. The Order of the Solar Temple was messed up. It was founded in the early 80s, although it came together over a period of many years. Most people kind of pin it down to 1984. And they believed to be sort of a reincarnation of the Knights Templar with some New Age mysticism thrown in. Their leaders were the aforementioned Luc Jure and Joseph de Mombro. They both kind of had their own following, so they just kind of combined them together to form something of a supergroup. They were the damn Yankees of cults. Jure claimed to be descended from members of a revival of the Knights Templar in France following the revolution in 1805, and just like the Knights Templar, they leaned heavily into secret rituals and symbolism. Nobody outside the group was allowed to attend their ceremonies or know their beliefs, and new members were only allowed in by being sponsored by elders in the groups, and then were only allowed in after performing elaborate rituals and rites. They had secret relics and handshakes and code words, and it was very hierarchical with three levels of membership. You could level up by being promoted by people who were in that upper 
echelon, or you could just buy your way in, which many people did. In fact, they sort of cultivated a lot of successful businessmen into the group that way. This was done on purpose, of course. These guys craved access to power, and in fact, they had a lot of connections to extremist right-wing groups in Europe. And of course, all that money funneled up to the leadership who lived an extravagant lifestyle off of it. As their exposure grew, so did the scrutiny over their financial structure and the behavior of the leaders in the group. Be behavior like, you know, insisting that all the women have sex with them. And along with the scrutiny came paranoia and delusions of grandeur. Luke Jure believed that he was the third reincarnation of Jesus, and Joseph de Mambro believed that his children were demigods. Their teachings became more and more apocalyptic. A survivalist mentality seemed to take over their group. In fact, they established a lot of organic farms that they could use to ride out the upcoming apocalypse. But this somehow morphed even further into believing that life itself is an illusion and that they would need to shed their earthly bodies so that they could be reborn on a planet orbiting the star Sirius. All this increasingly crazy rhetoric led to factions within the group, with some of the group choosing to split off and go follow a guy named Robert Fallardew. And this set the stage for DeMombro and Jure to enact their endgame, taking their followers with them and purifying their souls with fire. It's not known how many went willingly and how many were murdered in the cleansing of 1994. There were some bodies found with gunshot wounds that they had, but it's not known whether or not they were shot or it was just part of some grisly ritual. Believe it or not, the Order of the Solar Temple is still around today in some form, although the details of it are, unsurprisingly, very secret. Number three, the Branch Davidians. <sighs> oh boy. The Branch Davidians are probably the most controversial on this list because depending on who you ask, they are either a crazed extremist, child abusing end times cult that killed five police members and then burned themselves up in a fire, or a simple, slightly weird religious sect that was murdered in cold blood by federal agents. In fact, there are some people who make the argument that they shouldn't really even be called a cult but they fit a lot of the descriptions that I laid out earlier, so for the purpose of this video, I'm gonna go with it. The Branch Davidians are what some might call a new religious movement, but they've actually been around for a long time. They split from the Seventh-day Adventists in the 1930s. The Davidians were formed by a Bulgarian immigrant named Viktor Hotev, who believed that Jesus was not the Messiah prophesied in the book of Isaiah, that that Messiah had yet to come, and of course when this Messiah arrived, it would bring about the apocalypse. And of course this was gonna happen any day now. So Hotef and the Davidians bought land outside of Waco, Texas and named it Mount Carmel, where they planned to write out this impending apocalypse and establish a Davidic kingdom. Hotef's death in 1955 split the group a little bit, with some following his widow Florence and others following a pastor named Benjamin Roden. Florence and her followers left Mount Carmel and the remaining members started going by the name Branch Davidians. By 1981, Benjamin Roden had passed away and the leadership of the group passed on to his wife Lois and his son George Roden, who continued to preach the gospel that this Messiah was going to be coming soon and bringing the apocalypse with him. And then in walked Vernon Howell. Howell came from an unstable family and had a troubled past, but he had just become a born-again Christian, bouncing from the Southern Baptist Church to the Seventh-day Adventists and eventually winding up at Mount Carmel. His ascendancy to the leadership of the group is every bit as crazy as any of the events that would follow. He quickly won over supporters with his encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible and his seeming gift for prophecy. But what may have sealed the deal on his leadership was the fact that he had an affair with Lois Roden. He believed that God told him that they were going to have a child together and that that child would be the chosen one. George Roden, for obvious reasons, didn't particularly care for this mother so he filed a lawsuit claiming that Howell had brainwashed and raped his mother. Things got heated to the point that Vernon Howell left Waco in 1984 and took his followers with him, which was most of the group at the time. They went to Palestine, Texas, and then George Roden renamed Mount Carnival Rodenville. But this long-distance beef continued with George calling his 
feud with Vernon a holy jihad. But finally in 1987, George decided to put an end to this feud and challenge Vernon to a competition. And whoever won this competition would win the right to lead this group. And the competition that he had in mind was, of course, who could raise the most dead people? Like you do. George set out praying over the body of a dead church member named Anna Hughes, and Vernon decided actually not to participate and instead called the police and reported George for corpse abuse. All of this came to a head in November of 1987 when Vernon returned to Mount Carmel with seven of his followers wearing camouflage and heavily armed, and a gunfight ensued. They would later claim that they were just there to get some pictures, but regardless, a gunfight broke out and George Roden fled the scene with multiple gunshot wounds. He would survive, but he lost control of the group. Vernon's trial for attempted murder ended in a mistrial, and he and his followers returned to Mount Carmel where he assumed sole leadership and changed his name to David Koresh after King David and King Cyrus from the Bible. Over the next six years, David Koresh continued growing the church and preaching the gospel that he was the true Messiah that had been prophesied all those years ago and that the apocalypse was soon at hand. He claimed that children of the Messiah were sacred, and so therefore it was his duty to seed the world with his children in order to usher in this new Davidic kingdom. So then he's persuaded, some might say ordered, many of the women in the group to become his wives and have children with him, some of whom were underage. Eventually 13 kids would be born to David and his many wives. But it wasn't the polygamy and underage sex that got the attention of the authorities, it was the stockpile, the arsenal of weapons that they had begun hoarding in order to prepare for this upcoming apocalypse. Of course, when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms began snooping around, this only validated his belief that dark forces were descending on them. On February 28, 1993, agents from the ATF rolled up on Mount Carmel to execute a search warrant. What happened next has been argued and debated ever since, but it resulted in a massive gunfight that killed five of the agents, six of the Branch Davidians, and wounded 16 others, including David Koresh, and began a standoff that would last for 51 days. The media descended on the area, and the country was gripped with 24-hour news about the standoff. David Koresh took advantage of this by releasing videos from inside the compound proclaiming their innocence and highlighting his wounds from the original gunfight. As the standoff continued, the FBI grew in force, eventually becoming what Malcolm Gladwell described as, quote, the largest military force ever gathered against a civilian suspect in American history. The FBI attempted negotiations as well as strong-arm tactics to get them to come out, including playing loud noises and music 24 hours a day to induce sleep deprivation. According to a surviving member of Clive Doyle, this consisted of, quote, Rabbits being killed, warped up music, Nancy Sinatra singing These Boots Are Made For Walking, Tibetan monks chanting, Christmas carols, telephones ringing, and reveille. Doyle said, I got to where I was only getting about an hour or two of sleep every 24 hours. Finally, on April 19th, the FBI raided the compound with armored tanks and tear gas. Again, what happened next has been debated ever since, but one way or another, a fire broke out. It quickly engulfed the compound, killing 76 of the 85 people inside. The narrative immediately following this event sort of painted the Branch Davidians as a paranoid death cult that set themselves ablaze to save their souls. But over the years, the narrative shifted a little bit to become more about government overreach. And I don't think that's an invalid argument. But that narrative took hold immediately amongst right-wing militia groups who used it as a rallying cry against tyranny. In 1995, on the second anniversary, Timothy McVeigh killed 168 people when he blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City in an act of revenge. There are still Branch Davidians around today, some of whom still are waiting for David Koresh to return from the grave. Caitlin Doty from Ask a Mortician actually went to Mount Carmel recently and did a really great video about it. There's a lot more details there if you want to go check that out. But suffice to say, this is a very complex moment in American history, and its legacy lives on. 
By the way, if you're wondering what happened to George Roden, he was actually arrested in 1997 in Odessa, Texas for murdering his roommate with an axe. He claimed that David Koresh had sent this man to kill him from beyond the grave. At his trial, he was declared not guilty by reason of insanity. Number two, the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. You know, one thing that stands out to me about the three stories that I just told you is they all took place in the decade leading up to the millennium. And I don't think that's a coincidence, even if that wasn't, you know, explicitly stated as a catalyst for it. There was a lot of millennium anxiety at the time. And in fact, even non-religious people feared a technological apocalypse with the Y2K bug. But the event that ended the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God was 100% about the millennium changing. The movement came together in the late 80s in Uganda, sort of a splinter sect from the Catholic Church that believed that we need to go back to the Ten Commandments, that people should live completely by the Ten Commandments, hence the, the name of the group. They believed this so strongly that they discouraged talking to prevent the possibility of breaking the Eighth Commandment about bearing false witness. In fact, many of the members of the group communicated through sign language. And they also, say it with me, believed that the apocalypse was coming soon. That's, that's sort of a thread with these groups. They believed that they were meant to be sort of like a Noah's Ark, you know, a place of refuge for the good people while the world is cleansed of wickedness. Now, to understand how this group came to be, you kind of have to understand the context of the world that it came up in. Uganda from the 70s through the 90s was a mess. A series of dictators and warlords ran the country, leading to endless civil wars. The AIDS pandemic hit that area hard, decimating populations. The economy was in shambles. And with all their other institutions crumbling around them, many turned to the Catholic Church. Simultaneously, there was a rash of sightings of the Virgin Mary in Uganda and across Africa in general. And there was a good reason for this. Sightings of the Virgin Mary are known as Marian apparitions in the Catholic Church, and to believers, they were powerful symbols of divine power that usually reflected something sacred about the place where it was seen or something sacred in the people who witnessed it. Marian apparitions that are confirmed by the church are a big deal. Usually temples are put up there and they you know, become canonic in the Catholic Church. They get names like Our Lady of Lourdes and Our Lady of Fatima. These locations attract thousands of visitors a year and help convert local populations. In fact, that was kind of a strategy that the church used to grow into new areas. So in Uganda and other hurting African nations at the time, having a confirmed sighting would be a huge deal. It would bring a lot of resources there that they desperately needed. Of course, the church didn't confirm every case. They actually confirmed very few cases, but even still, somebody claiming to have seen the Virgin Mary, if they're persuasive enough, could grow a huge following in a local area. So it was in this time and place that Credonia Merwende grew up. Seeing the Virgin Mary was kind of a family business for Credonia. Her father Paolo had claimed to see the Virgin Mary and his dead daughter going all the way back to the 60s. When she got older and claimed to see visions of the Virgin Mary herself, her father convinced her to go around and, and spread the word. And she quickly became known as a bit of a spiritual mystic to the population. And she claimed to be the resurrection of Mary Magdalene, which made sense because she kind of dabbled in prostitution. In 1989, she met Joseph Kibwateri, and together the two of them crafted their apocalyptic worldview and put it into a booklet that they titled A Timely Message from Heaven, The End of Present Time. And then they used that booklet to grow their church around Africa. Kibwateri grew up in a wealthy religious family with close ties to the church, and he had ambitions toward leadership. He ran for office a couple of times, but he never really won, so instead he took this family money and he had built a school in his name. So he was a well-known and respected member of the community. So when he and Credonia joined forces, she had the spiritual currency and he had the social currency. So she kind of went out there and converted the followers and he ran things from the background. In fact, he went by the name The Figurehead and she went by the name The Programmer. It's a pretty apt name for a cult leader. 
And together they grew a substantial following across southern Uganda. And not a lot is really known about the group during this time because like I said, Uganda was kind of a mess. There's not a lot of documentation out there about it. In fact, you keep seeing the same images over and over again in this segment because that's literally all there is. There's just, there's just nothing else. At their height, they had up to 5,000 members, and like any good cult, they had hierarchies and inner circles, and they actively promoted uh, bringing in former Catholic priests and people connected with the church so that they had some legitimacy. And like a lot of cults, they came under scrutiny for forced labor and kidnapping. What we do know is that as the millennium approached, they thought this would usher in this apocalypse that they had been preaching about. So they made the prediction that the world was going to end on December 31st, 1999. And then it didn't. As often happens when end time sex are wrong, they just push the date forward a little bit, just kind of kick that Armageddon can down the road. This time they predicted it on March 17th of 2000, and they seemed determined to make this one stick. On March 15th, they were seen buying up to 70 cases of Coca-Cola and three bulls, which they slaughtered and then served on a giant feast on the evening of the 17th. 338 people gathered in their new church to celebrate the end of the world, dancing, feasting, and praying into the evening. As the evening drew to a close, they all went into a separate building, an older dining hall, to wait out the end of the world. The windows and the doors were boarded shut. And then immediately after they got in there, within minutes, local people heard explosions and the building went up in flames. All 338 people died in the fire, but incredibly, the nightmare was just beginning. Over the next week, more bodies were found throughout southern Uganda, including six that were found at the site of the church buried under the latrine. A mass grave in Bahunga contained 153 bodies, a sugarcane field near Rugazi held 155 bodies in a mass grave, and the homes of two of the church inner circle were found to have 81 and 103 bodies respectively. Medical examiners determined that these people were mostly poisoned and strangled and that these deaths occurred a few weeks before March 17th. So many people died that an exact number can't be determined, but they believe that the total number is over 800 people. The Ugandan government investigation determined that these were not a mass suicide. They have classified this as a mass murder. It's thought that when the world failed to end on December 31st, some rifts may have formed in the church, and this caused the leaders to mastermind this plot to sort of save face. It's one of those, like, if I can't have you, nobody can things. And the cherry on top of all of this is that the bodies of Joseph Kibwateri and Credonia Merwende have never been identified. It's assumed they died in the fire, but there's no hard proof of this. Now granted, this is true of many of the victims of the fire, because fire, but there have been reports from various people that have seen them in places like Kampala, the capital of Uganda. This might not mean anything, but there are many people who think that they escaped the fire that night and are alive today. Now, before we get to the number one on this list, I want to call out a few honorable mentions. Like the true Russian Orthodox Church that locked themselves in a cave for several years. The ancient Rikyo cult that poisoned a Tokyo train station with sarin gas, killing 12 people. The Matamoros human sacrifice cult that murdered over a dozen people along the border of Mexico. And of course, the Manson family, who murdered seven people in an attempt to start a race war. All of these cults were terrifying in their own rights, but thankfully didn't stack up the numbers like some of the others on this list, even though they may have wanted to. But when it comes to worst cults in terms of human death, there's really only one name that stands out above the rest. Number one, the People's Temple Agricultural Project, also known as Jonestown. The People's Temple and their leader Jim Jones have become known as the gold standard of cults after nearly a thousand of them killed themselves by drinking cyanide-laced punch in 1978. Like, honestly, I didn't want this to be number one on this list. I wanted something a bit more unexpected for this, but it turns out, no, you just can't beat Jonestown. 
And part of the tragedy of Jonestown is that it really had potential to be something really good in the world. But instead, it turned into this nightmare that we're still reeling from 40 years later. Jim Jones grew up a poor kid in Indiana to an alcoholic father. And maybe because of this dysfunction, he seemed to turn inwards and became obsessed with religion and death. Friends would later tell stories of him holding funerals for dead animals he found. As he grew into adulthood, he joined the Pentecostal church and cut his teeth on the revival circuit, driving from town to town, putting on shows to convert the masses. Here, he honed his skills at building a following. He was heavily focused on social justice in his work. Having grown up poor, he felt connected to disadvantaged communities and filled his pews with blacks and minorities. He adopted children of multiple races and got heavily involved in the civil rights movement at the time. This was difficult to do in Indiana. It was the 60s and they were still pretty segregated at the time, so eventually he picked up his following and moved them to Ukiah, California. One of the reasons he picked Ukiah was because he had read somewhere that it was one of the safest places to be in the event of a, a nuclear holocaust, which is something that he thought was coming soon. Here he established a farm where the entire congregation lived and worked. It was sort of a prototype for what would follow later on. And this is where he started leaning toward the ideas of communism. Of course, this wasn't something he could just come out and say. He had to couch it in terms of religion. People involved in the group had to kind of hand over their, their money to him. He convinced older members of the group to, to sell their homes and then give the money to the church, and then the church would put them up in senior centers and take care of them for the rest of their lives. And by all accounts, this worked out pretty well. The seniors in the group seemed to have been pretty well taken care of. This also meant that church members were working constantly, which is a common trait in cults, you know, don't give them time to think about what's going on. In the summers, the congregation would hop on buses and travel the country, putting on shows and events everywhere they went. He tapped into his experience doing the revival circuit, and it worked. The congregation grew into the thousands. He preached against sex, calling it selfish and against the ways of God, although he himself did not abstain from sex. He slept with many of the congregation, including the men. In 1974, he moved the group to San Francisco and became politically active. He would basically hire out his church members to go to rallies and do letter-writing campaigns for progressive causes. He, came, he became kind of a go-to guy in San Francisco politics. Politicians made a point of meeting with him, figures like Walter Mondale and Rosalind Carter. Eventually, he helped get San Francisco's mayor elected, and in return, he was named the head of the housing committee. And this seems to be when things started to spiral downward. Now that he was sort of part of the government, he was under more intense scrutiny. And it didn't help that he had his members of the church join in all the meetings and cheer wildly whenever he said anything. It really made people start to wonder what was going on with this guy and his weird followers. The extra scrutiny made him more paranoid. This was in the years following MLK and Robert F. Kennedy's assassinations. He became convinced that progressives like him were being targeted. So he created his own secret service within the group that not only was there for his protection, but it was also there to kind of weed out dissenters from the group. His sermons got darker and more apocalyptic. Anybody who stepped out of line was publicly shamed in church services. He even encouraged violence against dissenters, basically having beatdowns as part of the service. And he began doing drugs, which only amped up his paranoia. Convinced they weren't safe anymore, he bought up land in Guyana in 1975 and began constructing Jonestown, a jungle paradise where they would establish a communist utopia, away from all the dark forces in the U.S. government that would try to destroy what they built. Toward the end of July in 1977, Jones got word that some former cult members were speaking out against him and had been talking to a reporter from a magazine called New West. It was set to be a damning expose filled with stories of fake faith healings, violence, and sexual abuse. Within hours, Jim Jones was on a plane to Guyana. He moved the congregation to Jonestown seemingly overnight, and in this new place, isolated from everything they knew, his stranglehold over them only tightened. 
They had no communication with the outside world, were made to work 18 hours a day, and he turned church members against each other, making it their duty to turn other members in if they spoke about wanting to leave. He had loudspeakers set up throughout the compound where he played recorded sermons and messages 24 hours a day, claiming that the outside world was falling apart and that their only salvation was Jonestown. No matter where they were in the complex, Jim Jones's voice was in their ear. They literally couldn't escape it. Over time, the messages got darker and more apocalyptic, more convinced that dark forces were bearing down on Jonestown. And then in November of 1978, they got a visit from Leo Ryan. Leo Ryan was a congressman from California, and he had a reputation as sort of a hands-on politician. Like at one point, he was investigating prison reform, so he actually spent a week in Folsom Prison. Imagine a politician today doing that. He'd been lobbied by family members of Jonestown residents saying that they couldn't get access to him, they didn't know if they were okay, that they were being held there against his will. So he decided to go take a look for himself. On November 17th, 1978, he flew down to Guyana with some members of his staff and a handful of reporters. And they were impressed with what they found when they first got there. What these people had been able to build in the middle of the jungle, it was actually a, a nice, self-sustaining commune. Plenty of food, nice accommodations, a medical clinic, school, daycare for the kids, and everybody was happy. The congregation welcomed them with open arms. They held a reception with music and food and dancing, and they couldn't stop telling them how happy they were to be there. Whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe that this is the best thing that ever happened to them in their whole life. But later in the evening, some cracks began to show. Throughout the celebrations that night, a couple of people slipped notes to the camera crew asking for help escaping Jonestown. The next morning, Leo Ryan confronted Jim Jones about it. Doesn't it concern you, though, that, that this man, for whatever reason, one of the people in your group... People was... play games, friend. They lie, they lie. What can I do about liars? As Ryan and his group prepared to leave, more and more people came out of the woodwork begging to go back with them. And all hell broke loose. You bring those kids back here! Hold on a you bring them back! One second, one second. Sixteen Jonestown residents joined the congressional delegation and they left Jonestown for the nearby airport. But as they were boarding a plane, another truck pulled up and several gunmen jumped out and opened fire on them. In all, five people were killed on the airstrip, including Congressman Ryan. Back at the compound, Jones called an emergency meeting in the pavilion where he broke news of the congressman's death. Seeing no way out at this point, he ordered his underlings to mix up some cyanide with punch and began distributing it throughout the congregation. And this is where the term drink the Kool-Aid came from. Uh, you know, where somebody has really bought into an idea to an extreme level, they say they drink the Kool-Aid, which is unfortunate for the Kool-Aid company because they are actually drinking Flavor-Aid. They gave it to the children first in order to give the parents less reason to go on living. Families were told to lie down together in the grass outside the pavilion, and in a matter of hours, it was all over. 909 men, women, and children lay dead. Jones was found lying on the pulpit with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head under a banner reading, those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. 36 people who were at Jonestown survived the massacre. Some of them hid, some of them fled into the woods. One person slept through the whole thing. Many of the survivors of Jonestown don't like calling it a mass suicide. Apparently people with guns surrounded the pavilion pointing them inwards and forced people to drink at gunpoint. And even those who did drink willingly had been psychologically stripped of their agency in the preceding years. To the survivors, this was a mass murder. So it's easy to call the people of Jonestown crazy or sheep, but 
we're all social animals and we're all vulnerable to succumbing to social pressures. Add into that mix the, the chaos of what was going on, people with guns and years of being psychologically brainwashed. Who knows whether you or I would have made the same choice. Now I want to acknowledge that there is an argument to be made here that there were much worse and deadlier cults in the ancient world, like say the Aztecs who killed hundreds of thousands of people and religious rituals. I'll let you guys debate that down in the comments. But why am I talking about cults right now? The easy answer is that it just worked out this way. But the more interesting answer is we're currently living in a climate that is very conducive to cults. You know, I pointed out earlier that four of these five cults took place in the 90s leading up to the millennium. Well, the other one, the fifth one, took place in the late 60s, early 70s when there was a ton of social upheaval. There were a lot of cults that came out during that time period, including the Manson family. But think about what was going on during that time period. The civil rights movement was in full swing. Vietnam was tearing the country apart. Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. And this was the generation that grew up with JFK being assassinated just 10 years before that. I mean, this was their 9-11 and it's like it was happening all over again. You know, I never really appreciated just how much the world changed during that time period in my parents' generation. You know, social and political institutions just crumbled to the ground and the people grasped for something to give them meaning. Cults thrive in times like that because cults target people in times of transition or loss. You know, when you've lost a job, when you've gotten out of a relationship, or when you've just moved. This is when we're the most rudderless and desperate. In fact, I got curious if this trend went back further, so I went and looked to see if there were any Depression-era cults that might have come up, and it turns out there was a cult scare in the media between 1935 and 45. So here we are now, in the words of pretty much every commercial you've seen in the last six months, living in trying times. More abrupt change, more civil unrest, more economic distress, and on top of all that, a generation-defining event that has completely upended social norms. More fertile ground for cults could not be designed. But I'm sure you got nothing to worry about. You're smart. There's no way you're going to fall into a cult. Oh, and by the way, you know who else thinks that? Everyone who's ever been in a cult. Cults basically operate like pyramid schemes. You know, the people are, are encouraged to go out and recruit new members, and by doing so, they raise their own status within the organization. Uh, it's a lot like a multi-level marketing business. And in fact, a lot of MLM schemes are very culty. And just like MLM schemes, most people recruit their families and friends and coworkers. In fact, two-thirds of people that join cults do so through friends and family members. A friend or family member who may be trying to go up in the group, or they might sincerely just be wanting to help you. I mean, this group gives them purpose and clarity, and, and you might be in a bad state, and they just kind of want to offer that to you as well. There's this amazing documentary that I watched while researching this video. It was called Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple. And I think the opening words of this movie say it best. Nobody joins a cult. Nobody joins something they think is going to hurt them. You join a religious organization, you join a political movement, and you join with people that you really like. This is what draws you in. The camaraderie, the friendship, the shared purpose. It happens very casually over time, and then eventually they start to employ ingratiation techniques. They'll, they'll give you a gift or do you a favor, and that kind of institutes a sense of reciprocity inside you that makes you want to do something in return for them. And so next thing you know, you're doing things for them. And then the psychological phenomenon kicks in that once you do something for somebody, once you've invested some time, some energy, some money toward a thing, you tend to trust it 
a little bit more. In fact, this is something that scam artists often do. They ask somebody to do a tiny little favor for them, and that tiny little favor institutes just a little bit of trust in them. And then once you're in, the goal is controlling your thinking by shutting down any dissent through fear or guilt or shame. Make it known that speaking out will incur a social penalty. Then they isolate you as much as possible and restrict the access to information from the outside world. Often this means shutting off relationships with family and friends. And by the way, in many of these groups, you're given more information about the group's core beliefs the further up you go in the organization. So whenever you hear like some really crazy beliefs that some of these cults have, most of the people don't know that when they first join. It's only once they've gotten past a certain point that they're willing to accept it. You know, only once you've accepted the previous line in the sand will they draw another one. And then cognitive dissonance kind of keeps you trapped there because the further you go into it, the harder it is for you to accept that you've been deceived. And even when some reason or logic might have slipped through, at this point, you might be so deeply ingrained into this group, you might be so isolated from the outside world, you're convinced that you can't go on without these people. So you just kind of ignore the crazy and carry on. All of this operates on psychological phenomena that we are all susceptible to. There was a famous experiment in 1951 known as the Ash Conformity Experiment. It was created by psychologist Solomon Ash, and it basically had people answer a series of very simple and obvious questions. Each card had a target line on one side and three lines of various lengths on the other side, and they were asked to pick which line closest matched the length of the one on the left. And this is incredibly simple, the answer is obvious, but these people were put into a room with five other people who were all in on the test. And when every card was revealed, they went down the line and each person in the room gave their answer, one at a time. Sorry. Three. Three. But every once in a while, the actors in the group would give the wrong answer. Two. Two. The question is, when everybody else gives a different answer than what you're very clearly seeing with your own eyes, will you speak up against the group, or do you go along? Uh, two. On average, people went along with the group 37% of the time, and 75% of subjects went along with the group at least once. Later, when asked why they went along with the group even though they knew the answer was wrong, the answers tended to fall into one of two camps. One, because they wanted to fit in with the group, also known as normative influence, and two, because they believe the group is better informed than they are, or informational influence. We are all susceptible to groupthink and social pressures, which means that we are all more vulnerable than this kind of psychological trickery than we think we are. And the scary thing is that during this particular trying time that we're living through, we're kind of brainwashing ourselves. After all, who needs a charismatic leader when an algorithm can tell you what to think and the company that made the algorithm can make billions of dollars off of it? Polarization is rising around the world at an alarming rate. And it's happening at a time when we get most of our information from social media and search engines that are not designed to show us an accurate picture of the world. They're designed just to get us to interact with them in some way, usually by showing us things that we already wanna see. You know, an article that perfectly proves the point that you were trying to make earlier in the day, or a video that amps up a fear that you already have. It's not the same as a cult, but it does breed the same information bubbles that lead us to believing in different realities. And baked into that is an us versus them mentality and a shared sense of victimhood that, you know, breeds this need for revenge. This is leading to some scary places. So just like we need to be wary of cults trying to brainwash us, we need to be wary of our ability to brainwash ourselves. You know, poke holes in your information bubble. You know, take a look at some outside perspectives that are different from your own. You don't have to believe it. Just be aware that they're there. 
and take an audit from time to time of, of where you are in your thinking. You know, how different are you thinking now than maybe you had a year ago? Is there anything you believe now that, you know, at some point early in your life you could have never imagined believing? Have you drunk the flavor aid on some topic? I think cults teach us a lot about how we think and what our vulnerabilities are and the horrifying things that we never would have thought we we're capable of. So, this was a long video. This was one of those subjects that I thought would be a really simple video, and then the more I got into it, the bigger and bigger and bigger it got. And I thought about splitting it up into multiple videos, but I thought it would probably work better all in one package. So here we are. I'm in Tim Dodd territory now. That actually happened again recently on another topic that I did decide to put into an entire series, and I'm going to be releasing that exclusively later on this year on Nebula. Nebula is a streaming service that I'm part of, along with many of your other favorite YouTube nerds, and it's a place where we can do things outside the YouTube ecosystem. Let's us try out new formats and not be beholden to the algorithm. So you can find all of our videos there ad-free, along with Nebula originals like Tom Scott's Money series or Real Engineering's Logistics of D-Day series. And on top of that, Nebula is partnered up with CuriosityStream, so when you get a subscription to CuriosityStream, you get Nebula for free. So you could be watching this video on Nebula and it might make you curious about how cults eventually turn into mainstream religions. So then you could pop over to CuriosityStream and watch the series, The Deadly Journey of the Apostles. This is a four part series that follows the apostles, Philip, Simon, and Matthew and the journeys they took to spread Christianity when it was at the time, just another messianic cult. But what they did after their leader was crucified would eventually lead Christianity to spread across the world. And this series shows how that happened. This is, of course, just one of thousands of documentary series that you can find on CuriosityStream from some of the best documentary filmmakers from around the world. It was created by the guys behind the Discovery Channel, so it's, it's carrying on a grand tradition. But yeah, when you sign up for CuriosityStream right now, you get Nebula for free, and they are offering 26% off of their yearly subscription, bringing it to a grand total of $14.79 for two streaming services for a year. I don't know how to better sell this. That's, that's, that's just ridiculous. So yeah, if that sounds good to you, I encourage you to go check out CuriosityStream at curiositystream.com slash Scott. Link is down in the description. I really think you'll like CuriosityStream. I watch it quite a bit myself. So thanks to CuriosityStream for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Patreon supporters, the answer files on Patreon that are forming an awesome community, helping me out. Uh, I actually got a whole lot of help from last week's video from one of the Patreon supporters, so I, I do appreciate you guys. Uh, we do have some new members. Let me murder the names real quick. We've got Rachel Zibluski. Uh, John Dutcher, Brian Betts, Andre Hogman, Waffley Nim, Luis, Luis, Kungula, Kalungla, sure, Jim Proctor, and KJS. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive live streams, and just join an awesome community, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, I invite you to check out this video because Google thinks you'll like that one. There's also plenty more on the sidebar over there with my face on it. And if you watch them and you like them and you want to see more, I encourage you to subscribe. I come back with videos every Monday. So, all right, thanks for sticking around to the end of this. I know it was a big one. I hope you enjoyed it. It was, it was a really fascinating subject for me, but you guys go out there, have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.